It's Friday, and you are listening to Boise State Public Radio News. I'm Gemma Gaudette. This is Idaho Matters, and since it is Friday, it's time for our Reporter Roundtable. This is, of course, when we get you updated on the news that made headlines this last week around our region. Today, our panel includes Scott McIntosh, Opinion Editor with the Idaho Statesman, Don Day, the founder and editor of BoiseDev.com, and Caleb Rodell, KUNR's Mountain West News Bureau reporter. Hi, everybody. Hi, Gemma. Hey, how's it going? I am good. I am ready for the weekend. I hope all of you are, too. So uh, let's get into it, because a lot happened. Um, Let's start at the legislature, and let's talk about alcohol. So, Scott, um, we have some interesting liquor licensing laws here in Idaho. So first, can you kind of just quickly explain what those laws are, but then the debate that's going on in the Statehouse around this? Right. So Idaho control. So temperance is written into our constitution um, that we're supposed to promote temperance. And um, so we regulate the number of liquor licenses that are issued uh, to cities based on population, uh, which sounds like a you know smart idea. But what ends up happening mm-hmm. is that um, cities that have a lot of bars and restaurants like Boise, they kind of run out of liquor licenses. They're limited. There's It's a quota. Um, and so there's high demand for more liquor licenses, but according to state law, they can't issue any more. So what ends up happening is that whenever a liquor license is about to expire or somebody wants to uh, get rid of it, they can sell it on a secondary mm-hmm. market. Um, and sometimes these can go for tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars on the secondary market. Uh, one person testified that she had sold a um, liquor license for $350,000 uh, on the secondary market. So <laughs> the legislature the, wow. the legislature is, has wrestled with this from time to time um, and come up with, with solutions that uh, have their different um, pros and cons. Uh, but this year they've come up with um, really it's kind of a solution to the symptom. So the symptom is the secondary market. Um, that's caused by the quota problem. The problem is is the quota system. Um, and so what the, the bill that's being proposed uh, would do is say that you can't do this anymore. You can't sell it on the second market, um, on the secondary market. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, this this bill has, uh, uh, has now passed the Senate. It passed 27 to 8, so pretty uh, resoundingly. Um, and now it heads to the House um, and it'll be interesting to see if the House, you know, picks up on that that nuance that, well, this really doesn't get at the problem. This, there's still going to be a quota system uh, in popular cities uh, that may not have a big population, but have a big demand for for liquor licenses. Well, and it's so interesting, too, Scott. I'm curious about what people who hold these liquor license think, because, um, you know, we can talk. I mean, there, there are restaurants in, in Boise who have lost their liquor license over, over the years and have had to go and find a new one because the person that holds the license sells it or 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 leases it um, for a lot of money. I mean, I, I remember meeting a woman about four or five years ago that held something like, uh, I believe her family owned six liquor licenses and they lease them. And that is how, that, that is what they do for a living. So there goes right. someone's income potentially. Well, and so I should point out that this is going to be um, moving forward. So anybody who holds the liquor license, they can still um, sell it. So this is new liquor licenses issued. Um, mm. They can't. 
they can't transfer in the secondary market. So folks who are already in the situation, they're grandfathered in and they can continue this practice. The idea is that over time, this gradually will um, die through attrition as these liquor licenses um, expire or change hands that, um, that, that the folks won't be affected who have liquor licenses today. Hmm. But maybe at some point we change the law and allow more liquor license. Yeah, well, that would that would that would be the solution. That would be the solution to the problem. <laughs> yeah, what? Okay. Um. So, Don, uh, for folks who maybe don't wander downtown to Bo- uh, into downtown Boise over the weekend, some people may not be aware of of the cruise that 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 happens. Um. There has been a back and forth with this, I think, for decades with the city of Boise and with people who who participate in this. And so what? There are issues that are coming up once again. Around and around, they'll go where it will stop. Yeah. Cruise <laughs> uh, is a part of life in downtown Boise on primarily summer weekend evenings. Um, this has been an issue for a long time. And here's kind of an odd fact. If you've ever tried to drive around in Ann Morrison Park and you wonder why the roads are so screwy and there's like dead ends and things just kind of stop, it's because the crews used to be in Ann Morrison Park. And so they worked to move it out of the park. And of course, where did it go? But downtown Boise. And the city has worked to pass a number of different laws and ordinances over the years to um, get rid of some of what I think folks um, in business and the elected leadership see as some of the, the negative problems of the cruise. This came to a head last year when um, the Downtown Voice Association and uh, uh, then council member Holly Woodings, she's now council president, held a meeting with Downtown Voice businesses and it was uh, to some degree an, air, an airing of grievances. Um, people who were upset with noise, with smoke, with um, people littering, uh, folks not yielding to pedestrians. And so this meeting last year uh, then went to the city and and city staff where they kind of tried to come up with some ideas for like, okay, how can we we fix some of this? And they came up with uh, a bundle of solutions. The first is changing the way that they measure sound coming from vehicles. Right now, it's very hard for them to determine if um, a vehicle is making a sound that's over a certain decibel level. And so they've actually changed that to make it a little less specific and change the language to basically say it's a it's an out of, uh, out of the ordinary type of noise. So like an intentional backfire uh, of the car or, um, you know, some of those types of things. And the key thing here is it would only be for vehicles that have been modified. So if a vehicle is factory issued and maybe accidentally backfires, that would be a defense against this, this ordinance. The second piece is right now, uh, infractions in the city of Boise are capped at $100, but uh, Idaho State Code allows cities to uh, assess a fine on an infraction of up to $300. So the city would raise the limit on infractions to $300 but leave all other infractions at 100 bucks except for these related to the cruise. They would also make it so if someone had a second citation for an issue within a year, that second citation would be a misdemeanor. And misdemeanors in Idaho carry a penalty of up to $1,000 and six months in jail. It's a lot stiffer. Right now, 
if, if uh, somebody's out there cruising and their car's making a lot of noise and cops go up and cite them, it's a $100 fine. If they do it an hour later, it's another $100 fine. And if they do it the next weekend, mm. it's another $100 fine. Not cheap necessarily, but also not, not crazy expensive. This puts a little mm-hmm. more teeth to that. And then the last piece is that uh, the Boise Police Department would um, step up its enforcement uh, starting this summer, um, including on the inbound connector, looking for DUIs, speeding, and that type of thing. Um, and then kind of a saturation patrol in the downtown core where they would look to enforce the new things, but also many of the other laws on the books, speeding, racing, reckless driving, aggressive driving, bail gear to yield. Uh, City Council Member Patrick Bajan um, <laughs> had a quote, and in fact, um, another member of the council called him out for just having a good quote for the media, and whether or not that was his bet uh, or not, it was a good quote for the media. And he said, <laughs> it shouldn't be illegal to drive your car in a circle, but it should be illegal to drive your car in a circle like a jerk. <laughs> and I think that's what they've tried to address here is, yeah. hey, if you want to cruise, that's cool, but let's not do it in a way that's going to impact the other users of downtown. Uh, people on foot, people maybe enjoying dinner on the patio, uh, people heading to or from a, a, a you know a, a game or an event at the ICC arena, those types of things. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to figure out how maybe things can coexist uh, a little bit better. Yeah, makes sense. So, uh, Caleb, let me bring you into the conversation. Um, can we talk sustainable building materials? You recently did a report on this, um, that there's becoming a much bigger demand for this throughout the Mountain West. What did you learn? Yeah, um, so th- this isn't breaking any news. A lot of people are focusing more on health and the environment. Um, one sign of this, obviously, is organic food in people's fridges, right? Um, but you can mm-hmm. also see this trend somewhere a bit unusual inside people's walls. Um, commonly used materials like fiberglass and spray foam, that they can contain toxic chemicals that pose health risks, uh, especially to the installers. Um, so we have at least two businesses in our region that make sustainable insulation. I uh, talked to a company based here in Reno called Havelock Wool. They make insulation out of sheep wool. And uh, they've saw demand explode during the pandemic. Uh, their sales quadrupled in 2020 and grew another 25% in 2021. And the owner says it would have grown last year, but they just couldn't simply keep up with demand. And then I also talked to a company based in Ketchum, Idaho, that makes insulation out of hemp. Um, they're called Hempitexture. And they source their hemp from farmers in Montana. And their owner, kind of same thing, they, he said that since they started the company, sales have doubled year over year, um, and they just continue to see demand roll in, and they're like, kind of like Havelock Wool, having a hard time keeping up with it. Um, hmm. Yeah, interesting stuff. And really? No, I mean, very interesting. Um, so before we take a break, Scott, I want to head back to the legislature real quick. Can you fill us in? Um, on a bill that would ban certain restrictions that are in place right now on militia groups here in Idaho? Yeah. Um, So the Idaho Senate on Monday cleared a bill that would repeal a longstanding state law regulating militias and paramilitary organizations. Um, This is a bill that was introduced last year by the Idaho National Guard as kind of like a cleanup bill. Um, This is a um, regulations that aren't being enforced um, but the, the law as it stands now, it forbids a body of men, quote unquote, a body of men 
other than the National Guard to, quote, associate themselves together as a military company or organization or parade in public with firearms in any city or town in Idaho. Um, and so Senator Dan Foreman brought this bill uh, forward um, um, to, to essentially get rid of this, this regulation, um, arguing essentially that it is an infringement on people's right to assemble peaceably in the First Amendment, protected by the First Amendment, and uh, the right to bear arms in the, the Second Amendment. Um, however, uh, folks have pointed out, opponents of this, this move have pointed out that the U.S. Supreme Court and other lower courts have upheld similar anti-militia statutes in other states, uh, um, you know, saying that it was not a violation of First and Second Amendment rights, as some people testified, um, you know, you're, you, by regulating, by having this regulation in place, um, you can, you're still allowing free speech, you're still allowing uh, the right to peaceably assemble, and you are still allowing the right to bear arms. You're just saying that you can't do all three at the same time. And the opponents uh, to the bill make that argument that if you allow all three at the same time, you might actually have a chilling effect on other people's rights to free speech um, and right to peaceably assemble if folks show up um, armed and counter-protesting and, mm-hmm. um, and that sort of thing. So uh, like I said, this passed the Senate and now heads to the House. Um, it it passed along pretty much party lines. There were a couple of Republicans who voted against it, um, but uh, it now heads to the Senate, which overwhelmingly voted for the same version of the bill last year. So this probably is going to end up on the governor's desk. It'll be interesting to see, again, what Governor Little decides to do. I, I think so. It'll, I think it'll be very interesting to see what he ends up doing if this does land on his desk. Um, in case you are not aware, we are moving our clocks forward an hour this Saturday night. So Scott, uh, lots of debate in particular over the last year or so about whether we should be moving, uh, moving our clocks twice a year. Um, and, and your editorial team recently wrote about this because this is going to bring up, I think, even more debate in particular when we spring forward. That is the roughest one for folks, it seems. Right, right. And both both sides have consequences. The fallback and the yeah. spring ahead have, have negatives. Um, and, you know, it turns out most people oppose changing the clocks. They would like to, most people would like to get rid of changing the clocks. There are some people that that like the, the clock changing, and there's some good reasons for it. Um, but if if we agree, if we all agree that we should get rid, we should stop changing the clocks twice a year, uh, you've got two choices. You can get rid of daylight saving time and go to standard time year round, or you can go to year round uh, daylight saving time. Um, and both have their pros and cons. You know, if we did um, daylight saving time year round. Um, there are lots of studies that show that that improves um, recreation, it improves uh, crime rates, and it um, reduces um, traffic crashes. Um, because you have more people out in the evening, it's better to have that daylight in the evening uh, where more people are out and about and causing fewer crashes because of, of darkness. Um, so that's all well and good. But I did a little bit of research. Um, you know, one thing I will point out is that if we did year-round daylight saving time, our sunrise would be about 9.20 in the morning. Um, That's awful. Boo. Yeah. That's so everybody awful. hates the early. That, that, that is just, that is horrible. Yeah, yeah. nine 9.15. Um, and I have just noticed over the years of being a journalist, I've just noticed that it just seems like those two weeks before we fall back, when it starts mm-hmm. getting later, it gets um, darker later and later in the morning. 
there are accidents, there are crashes where kids have been hit, um, school children going to school, get yeah. hit by cars. Um, I've just kind of noticed that anecdotally. Um, and sure enough, back in 1974, um, the United States went to permanent daylight saving time uh, in January. This was an effort to save energy. This was during the energy crisis. And, and for sure, that's another argument for daylight saving time is that there is a slight savings on um, on energy costs. Um, but when we went to it, there were eight children, school children, who were hit and killed by cars in the first two weeks uh, in Florida alone. Um, and then several other states reported uh, that that other school children were uh, hit by cars um, in other states. And so it, it brought up this this great debate and eventually um, reverting back to, you know, the clock changing uh, won the day and the experiment with a permanent daylight saving time ended um, uh, later that year, 10 months later. Um, and, and then we have the system that we have now where it's four months out of the year. We have standard through November through the end of February, middle of March, um, and then daylight saving time for the, the rest of the year. And, you know, I know, well, I love, you know, later uh, daylight in the evening hours and staying out and hanging out um, at night. But I can't quite get over that notion of, you know, the sun not coming up until 915, 920 in the morning. Uh, during the winter. So there is a bill in the Senate, in the U.S. Senate, uh, to make daylight saving time permanent. Um, and an earlier version of this passed in the Senate already. It never quite made it over to the House or never quite made it through the House. So we'll see. This bill just got introduced last week um, in the Senate by Marco Rubio, senator in Florida. And so we'll see if that gains traction this time and maybe we'll have permanent daylight saving time and um, and have sunrise at uh, 930 in the morning in, in oh, the winter. That's just awful. Just, just, and, and I, I know I shouldn't give an opinion, but it's just awful. That's all I have to say about that. Okay. Um, Caleb, let's move on to you. You recently uh, did a story um, about some ag producers. Um, why are they wanting and needing relief to the point of asking the USDA for it. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know about you, Gemma, but man, this winter has felt really long, really hard. Um, I know a lot of people feel Again, the same. it's been awful. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, you speak for all of us. But it's been especially hard on livestock producers, and they're asking huh. the U.S. Department of Ag to consider flexibility with emergency relief programs. Um, n- now, normally, these are given in cases of natural disasters like wildfires and drought. But the big thing they're dealing with is all of the extreme cold, the persistent snow and high winds are making it really hard for them to truck cattle in and out of grazing areas. And the amount of plants for the cow to eat has basically shrunk because so many areas are blanketed in piles of snow, covered in ice. So they're struggling to find enough to eat. Adding to that, the cost of supplemental feed has shot up because demand is so high. And supplies of hay and other feed are are already low because of the ongoing drought. Um, so, so producers are having a hard time sustaining herds. They've had to deal with a lot of cattle loss, more so than in years past. Um, so they're basically help asking the federal government to help them with all of these issues. And even earlier this week, uh, Wyoming Governor Mark Gordon submitted a disaster declaration request to the Ag Department because of the impacts it's had on Wyoming's livestock industry. Hmm. So when will they know if they get this relief, Caleb? Do we have any idea? 
unfortunately, we don't. Um, I talked to the Nevada Department of Ag's director. Um, he's still waiting for a response from the USDA. And um, the senator from the U.S. senator from Nevada, Catherine Cortez Masto, mm-hmm. she recently kind of is bugging the USDA for some more urgency. She sent out a, a release yesterday demanding that they take some action because they're all just kind of, you know, struggling and this is their way of life and they're just seeing money be drained out of their accounts here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So Don, let's kind of stay with this agricultural topic um, because this is kind of interesting. A possible new sustainable ag site might happen near the Boise airport. Yeah, this is really interesting. Hopefully it doesn't sound like I'm moving to a new office anymore. Um, you sound fabulous now. You do not sound like you are lifting boxes and, and, and moving from one end of the room to the next. Another reason I don't like Zoom. Um, so <laughs> what's going on here is a company by the name of Greenscale uh, applied to the city of Boise to annex in a property right across the street from Micron. This is in the area uh, area airport area of impact. They want to build a 25,000 square foot uh, facility that will allow them to do uh, indoor agriculture. You might be uh, familiar with uh, the concept of hydroponics. Um, uh-huh. And they also want to be able to grow uh, fish here. And so this is kind of a pilot idea. It's about 25,000 square feet. And if it works, they're hoping um, to scale it up. And our Autumn Robertson and I kind of tag team this story. And, and she found out that they hope to produce about 80,000 pounds of uh, leafy vegetable and 20,000 pounds of fish each year uh, for distribution in the Boise market. Um, hmm. This came for the city council on Tuesday. I attended that meeting and um, the, the council was actually really excited about it. It was kind of just a routine annexation application. Um, but the council uh, was excited and um, uh, Mayor Lauren McLean referred to another project that's in this similar area uh, to move a company called Black Market Gelato up here. They're going to be making gelato um, near the airport as well. And she said, in our airport, uh, in our air, let's start this again. In our airport area of impact, we're going to have some fish and some vegetables and some gelato. So a whole meal deal. So it's interesting to start to see maybe these uh, innovative agricultural approaches happening right here in Boise. And, and you know, Idaho is really a hub for, for ag tech. This is off this topic just a little bit, but we have J.R. Simplot Company. We have Lamb Weston. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a whole bunch of other people. You know, the, the dehydrated potato was invented here. And so yeah. agricultural innovation isn't new in Idaho. And I know there's a lot of people that would like to see even more of this type of innovation happen here in the gem state. Okay, so Don, I know this isn't the same as agricultural innovation, but I want you to talk about this Boise startup. Um, They put a video on TikTok earlier this week, and man, it blew up. But I have to say, I love this idea as as someone who would definitely be interested in this product. I'll tell you what, I'm fascinated by this. So last last year, about a year ago, I went to a pitch competition day, and I saw Rachel Wilson, who is the co-founder of Bold Hue, get up and pitch this concept. This Boise startup wants to sell a device that you would keep in your home that has a wand that you scan your skin tone with and on the spot, it mixes a custom coloring foundation makeup for your skin type. It gives you about a two-week, not dose, a two-week sample of this that you can use. 
supply is the word. And it's fascinating because um, as I talked to to Rachel last summer and and listened to other people uh, who wear makeup, I wore makeup at Channel Seven once upon a time, a few times, um, and I, it it washed <laughs> me out, again. right? Because I, I couldn't get the yeah. right color, um, and so I can empathize a little here. The idea is instead of going and buying foundation, which is super expensive, and you know making it last or whatever, you can pour it at home. And the reason it's two weeks is because a lot of people's skin isn't consistent. The, the sunlight and other environmental factors mm-hmm. can change the coloring. Um, and foundation isn't the most inclusive thing because every skin shade is a little different and you kind of just have to get one that's close. And so this idea would then mix this makeup just for you. Um, and so when I heard this pitch last spring, not being an expert by any stretch in makeup, but but understanding a bit, um, women at other tables at this event were all chattering about how cool this was. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boise Dev's done a couple stories on this. And in fact, I've been, uh, I don't know what the word is, really surprised that no other news outlet anywhere in the country, no tech news, no, nobody else has covered this product. They got a significant amount of funding. And now um, they've taken to TikTok and they took, uh, about a 45 second video that explained the the product. Um, and as of this time yesterday, <clears throat> it had uh, 2.3 million views and now it's up to 3.4 million views. And it's wow. fascinating to read the comments from people who were like, finally, why hasn't this existed? Where can we do this? The product hasn't yet been released. They are getting closer. They've uh, released a wait list and um, it's a Boise startup with this big idea and some local investors and if it works and they can meet a lot of the challenges that they have to, to meet, it could be really disruptive um, in the makeup industry. And beyond foundation, they Rachel told me last summer that this can be used for other things like lipsticks and eyeliners and those types of things. So oh, I'm sure. Build this platform so you can kind of do like, it's almost like Keurig, right? You make your own coffee mm-hmm. at home. It's kind of that idea, except for it's even more customized because it's going to match the color exactly to this, to your skin. I have to say, as someone who wears makeup every day, I and I love makeup, I'm a makeup connoisseur, I would be all over this product and anything else that, that they were to make for the fact that for, for folks that wear makeup, you're so right, Don. It is, I mean, it is one of the hardest things to find a foundation, in particular, if you want to not have to go into a store all of the time and right. consult with someone. And, and every time you're... Anytime the the shade changes, you have to go back in and you have to talk with someone and you have to try to find the right shade. And it's, I I mean, this really could change the the makeup industry. And I don't say that that lightly at all. Yeah, and I don't either. And and, uh, Karen Layton, who is the co-founder here and and the inventor behind this uh, product is an electrical engineer. She worked for NASA. um, And... the interesting thing is, is, is I've dug into this over the last year, that the technology in a different form kind of exists. I actually think Dillard's has this, where you can go in and they will scan your skin type and they'll, they'll mm-hmm. sell you some foundation based upon that. But it's not necessarily custom mixed. And it's, you have to buy a whole bottle instead of this like small little supply. Um, it's interesting that they did a follow-up TikTok video today where somebody was like, oh, couldn't you imagine if they did this for paint for the wall, for instance, and you could scan a leaf and paint your wall. And so then they made a TikTok video using their machine, their device, 
They took a leaf, they scanned the leaf, it made the foundation, and then they painted the foundation on the leaf, and it was flawless. So it really is interesting to see where this might go and if if it works, right? I mean, my wife is out of out of view listening area, so I can say this, but like I got on the I got on the uh, wait list. I I'd love to see if this works and get this for her as a gift because I think it's something that is different. And, And I know I sound like I'm evangelizing this. I don't I don't have a stake in the business or anything. I just think that the idea is really cool. And it's cool to see a Boise startup do something that could be so transformational. No, I, I agree. Um, Troy, I do want to begin with you because um, a bill was proposed, I believe, in, in the House Revenue and Taxation Committee yesterday in the legislature. Um, and this is about property tax relief and potentially some significant property tax relief. Yeah, this is the long-awaited property tax relief bill um, that has uh, kind of finally reached a point to where uh, lawmakers, specifically Republican lawmakers in control of both chambers, say they have a bill that they think uh, their membership can vote for on both ends of the Capitol. What this does is it takes money from a bunch of different places, um, the state tax rebate fund, the surplus fund, it uh, uses some one-time monies to get it off the ground for the first year as well, and then adds in a portion of sales tax revenue and later on sales tax revenue from online purchases to essentially create two pots of money. One will be used to provide tax credits for people who get homeowners exemptions. These are, uh, you know, uh, for your primary residence, um, not uh, rentals or anything else like that, just for the primary residence. The second pot uh, the first year, they expect that to be around $100 million, will be distributed to school districts across the state. And those districts have to use that uh, first to uh, pay down existing bonds uh, that have been issued and then existing levies uh, after that. Or they can save it for a rainy day if they don't have any currently um, in force bonds or levies. The idea being there that you know, that money will cover the costs of what is being put onto property tax holders in those district areas and reduce property taxes for everybody. So that part of the benefit um, will go toward all property taxpayers, not just folks uh, holding a primary residence. The, the key with this bill really is how wide the range is because they're counting on uh, surplus funds, which are projected but not guaranteed, um, the range of money can that's going to be available each year can vary widely. Like we're talking, you know, $100 million or more in some cases. And so that's going to kind of determine how much of tax relief could be provided if this bill passes. It was uh, it was put together uh, by both, you know, House and Senate leadership. Uh, Scott Grow uh, involved in this. Doug Ricks, the two senators uh, on that side, and then Senator Monks, the Republican from Meridian, who uh, sponsored the bill. But he also had uh, a significant amount of input from House Speaker Mike Moyle. Hmm. So, it, it was, as we said, Troy, it was just introduced yesterday. So we really don't know. Um, where, where we'll go at this point. No, the target date is February 24th uh, for things to wrap up over at the State House. Uh, that is, uh, again, March one of those 24th. projected, uh, March 24th, you bigger part. Um, that's, again, one of those things that's projected but not guaranteed, right? And they might stay there longer in order to get this done. 
um, Speaker Moyle at an Idaho Press Club event this week was saying, you know, things have been happening behind the scenes. So we are making progress mm. regardless of whether or not it looks like we are. But, you know, when it gets down to it, we know what we have to do. And, um, you know, we're going to get this done. He still seems confident that, you know, assuming uh, and, and to be honest, I've been so wrapped up with some other projects. I haven't seen what happened in JFAC this morning. But he said if JFAC was able to finish its budget work today, uh, they stood a really good shot at hitting that uh, uh, signy die later this month. Yeah. Huh. OK. Yeah, that's two weeks from today. So we'll see if they make that. So, Scott, um, I know we've spoken on our program before um, about a bill that would bring back the firing squad here to Idaho. How, though, has this bill then brought some friction between the AG's office um, and Idaho prison officials? Yeah, Kevin Fixler with the Idaho Statesman has done some really good reporting on this, um, and he filed some public records requests and got some um, emails. And essentially, um, we we already knew uh, that Idaho Department of Correction Director Josh T. Walt last year opposed a similar bill to bring the firing squad. Um, and so we already know where he stood on this. Um, this year, it came back again with Representative Bruce Skog, um, and even a little different. It's And, and this is an important uh, piece here, that this wouldn't just allow the firing squad. It would require that a firing squad be used if the state is not able to procure the drugs necessary mm-hmm. to execute someone by lethal injection. So um, it turns out that, you know, the, the Department of Correction is is still opposed to this um, and they're concerned about the impact this would have on their uh, employees having to execute somebody by firing squad. Um, but what we learned is that uh, Idaho Attorney General Raul Labrador was personally involved in the crafting of this legislation. Um, and so, you know, we're we're just a couple of months into uh, Raul Labrador's uh, term as Idaho Attorney General. We've already had a couple of examples of um, where the Attorney General's office is not necessarily on the same page with the state agencies, um, the people that he's supposed to represent. Um, you might remember a couple of weeks ago, Rebecca Boone from the Associated Press wrote about the waters of the United States uh, federal regulation that the Department of Environmental Quality and some other state agencies and the governor's office was expecting Idaho to join a multi-state lawsuit um, to, to oppose those federal regulations. The Idaho Attorney General decided to skip uh, those those uh, lost that joining that lawsuit, um, and so we're seeing um, with firing squad in particular, um, where you've got the director of the Department of Correction really opposed to uh, this bill. Uh, being pushed by the Idaho Attorney General through um, one of the the legislators. Um, So uh, we'll see where that goes. Um, That bill did pass um, the the House pretty overwhelmingly uh, and now heads to the Senate. Um, And again, you know, the Department of Correction is part of the executive branch. Will Governor Little veto such a bill if it does make it to his desk um, at -hmm. the deference of his uh, department uh, director? Okay, we will see what happens with that. Um, Don, I only have about two minutes left, but I really want to talk about this. And this is the kind of, I think, reawakening of of the bouquet. If, If folks don't know this, this is a a, a building in downtown Boise. I always knew it as Blues Bouquet when I moved here in, in my 20s, but that's only one iteration of, of this building. 
Is Don there? Oh, okay. We're having an issue with Don. So you know what we're going to do? Um, I'm going to quickly tell you about this until we can see where Don is. But uh, Don did a fabulous piece on this. So you should read this on boisedev.com. But it is the, the Blues Bouquet building. It's a historic building, century-old building, and um, hasn't had any businesses in it since 2016, but is going to be a hotel and a restaurant. Don got a whole walkthrough of, of the building, and um, things should be in place hopefully by this next summer to have everything back up and open. This is at 1010 West Main Street, um, if you're wondering where it is. So a really historic part of downtown Boise. Uh, and and it is exciting to see this area revitalized. And um, the, the person that owns the building, uh, he is a Boise native, and he owned restaurants in New York City over the years, moved back to Boise in 2015, opened, um, uh, wanted to open a bar and restaurant. Um, but of course, then the pandemic hits um, and all of that. But he uh, found a partner. And now this building is coming to kind of fruition again, and should be really, I think, um, a great addition to downtown. So again, read Don's piece at boisedev.com because I'm just giving you a quick overview of it since we've had some audio issues today. But I do want to thank all of our, our uh, panelists for being a part of Idaho Matters today. Uh, we have been talking with Scott McIntosh, opinion editor with the Idaho Statesman, Don Day, the founder and editor of boisedev.com, Caleb Brodell from KUNR. He is part of the Mountain West News Bureau. And our very own Troy Oppie uh, joined us this uh, segment of course, Troy is the host of All Things Considered right here on Boise State Public Radio News. You can hear Troy later on today live on the air. And again, please do take time to find these other journalists here in Idaho to read their stories. Um, we are lucky to have the the journalism that we have in this state. So I recommend that you definitely give a read and a listen to everyone else. Thanks so much for listening to Idaho Matters. Boise State Public Radio and Idaho Matters are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jama Gaudet. We'll see you tomorrow. This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies.